WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latte from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is All of It. I'm Allison Stewart, live from the WNYC studios in Soho. Thanks for sharing part of your day with us. On tomorrow's show, I'm excited to tell you that we'll be in conversation with writer Margaret Atwood. Yes, she has authored novels like Handmaid's Tale and The Blind Assassin, but she also writes short stories, and surprisingly, not surprisingly, they're wonderful. She'll be in studio to discuss her latest collection, which is called Old Babes in the Woods. That's Margaret Atwood tomorrow. Today, let's talk Daisy Jones and the Six. The new streaming series, Daisy Jones and the Six, is based on a novel of the same name by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who says the book was inspired by live Fleetwood Mac performances. The story revolves around a 1970s band from its inception to its peak to its big fiery crash. There's sex, drugs, and of course, soft rock and roll. Fun fact, since the series' first episode was released, Jenkins Reid's book made it once again, to the top of Amazon's bestseller list. So, okay, so that happens sometimes with an adaptation like this. But more interestingly, the project included an album of original music based on lyrics from the novel. It was released under the name of the fictional band Daisy Jones and the Six, and it's titled Aurora, and it just became the first ever album by a fictional band to hit number one on iTunes. Let's hear an excerpt from that album. Here's a song called Look at Us Now. Showrunner of the series, Daisy Jones and the Six, Scott Neustadter, is known for his work on the films 500 Days of Summer, which has a lot of music, and The Fault in Our Stars, also based on the book. Executive producer on the series, Lauren Neustadter, 
Yeah, we'll explain the names in a second. Here's the plot. In Daisy Jones, Billy Dunn, the band's frontman, is sufficiently convinced of his high school band's chops that they all, as they say, get in the van and drive from Pittsburgh to California, where they find a music scene bound up strongly in the influence of bigwigs in the music industry. We follow Billy through substance abuse brought on by the pressure of the biz and a pregnant new wife. At the same time, Daisy Jones, played by Riley Keough, escapes her privileged but emotionally chilly home to pursue her true love of the music, not the fame, at least not at first. Her friend Simone helps turn her from an only-in-the-shower singer into an artist who knows that her place is center stage and all that's left is to make it happen. A review on RogerEbert.com calls the cast of the series, quote, uniformly excellent and goes on to compare it with Cameron Crowe's iconic rock movie classic, Almost Famous, in that it, quote, echoes the film's joyous creative spirit at its best in these first chapters. The series dropped its first three episodes on Amazon Prime last Friday. The next three come out this Thursday. So here to talk about it is showrunner Scott Newstatter. Hi, Scott. Hi. And executive producer Lauren Newstatter. Hi, Lauren. Hello. Hi. So, Lauren, the echoes of Fleetwood Mac are clear in this. And it's, you know, it, you've been really upfront. It's even woven into the promotion of, of the series. So when you think about the connective tissue between Fleetwood Mac and everything we know about Fleetwood Mac and this band that we follow in this series, what what is some of the connective tissue? And then what are some things you just really wanted to differentiate and make sure that Daisy Jones and the Six had to itself? Well, I know that Taylor Jenkins Reid, when she was writing this book, really sort of did ample research. I think she was completely fascinated with Fleetwood Mac, but she also was researching so many different bands of the era. Mm. And she really wanted to sort of make this, in many ways, an amalgam of a bunch of different things and different bands, um, but also, you know, really infuse a healthy dose of her own imagination and these beautiful, beautiful characters that she's known for creating. And I feel like Scott is actually the one who's been in really deep conversation with Taylor through the whole thing and through the adaptation. So Scott, I feel like you can probably talk with greater detail about exactly what the influences were and where they hit in the adaptation. Sure. I think the, the Fleetwood Mac is, is an obvious reference, mostly because it's the best example we have of artists putting their heart and soul into, into the music and, and all of the turmoil that they were going through emotionally in their relationships. And it's kind of a soap opera. Um, and listening to that album is, you know, we, we love the music because it's so great. But also you listen to the to the lyrics and you you hear the barbs that they're saying to each other. And um, it's just it's an extra level. Uh, so for us, that was kind of the impetus for what this show could be. It's going to have amazing music. It's also going to have a lot of relationship turmoil um, and uh, characters that you're interested in and in finding out how they overcome their um their obstacles with each other. And Scott, as someone, you know, part of your credits are adapted by Scott Newstetter. What were threads from the book that were challenging to uh, to adapt? Um, the book is lovely. And I, and I you know, I was a, mm -hmm. uh, an early fan of it. I got it before it had been published um, when it was still just in, a manuscript. Uh, and I flipped for the characters. I loved kind of how it was taking a, a new lens to 70s rock and roll um, there's a really amazing kind of female-centric uh, situation that you don't often see where, um, you know, it's it's crazy to have one female in a rock band at this time, but to have two uh, and to have two that aren't in competition with each other or, you know, um, they just support one another. I thought that was really lovely. Um, but it's really about kind of um, this, this family mm -hmm. uh, and um, all of the relationships um, are are kind of different kinds of love stories. There's a love story between 
the collaborators, there's the love story between the brothers, there's the love story between obviously the husband and wife and, and how that gets complicated. And um, I always just love writing about relationships. And this was a plethora of, of great stuff to write about. So Lauren, you mentioned Taylor Jenkins Reid, and she's listed as a producer on the series. What is something from the conversations that the Daisy Jones, you know, series creative team had with Taylor that proved to be really useful and helpful? Well, you know, one of the things that we talked about, I mean, just talking about useful and helpful and the evolution of book to series, which I always think is really interesting, is that Taylor had written lyrics in her novel mm -hmm. and they were excellent and they tied really beautifully into the story that she was telling there. But obviously one of the challenges in bringing it to life on screen is you wanna find incredible music producers who I think you're gonna be talking to in a little bit. Um, but you know, you wanna find really brilliant music producers who are gonna feel inspired to do the best work of their lives on the series. So we really got Taylor's blessing to take new songs uh, that were produced by Blake Mills and uh, in, in conjunction with Tony Berg, who you're going to be talking with, and also Frankie Pine, our music supervisor, worked very, very closely with the band and also with us as producers. And we architected an entirely original album. So there are 24 original songs in this show, mm -hmm. um, which was sort of the, the privilege of our lifetime to get to do this in addition to making this show, which was a big dream come true, but also working with Taylor and making sure that we had her blessing um, as we were doing it and, and seeing her excitement. I remember a day very early on when we brought Taylor and the folks from Amazon over to Sound City and we listened to a couple of songs for the first time and just seeing her reaction um, and being able to talk about it was really um, just an extraordinary experience and a once-in-a-lifetime sort of moment for us. We're talking about the series Daisy Jones and the six. My guests are Scott Neustadter and Lauren Neustadter. So Daisy, this character played by Riley Keough, you know, when she first meets the singer Simone, she says she could tell that she wasn't like the phonies <laughs> and that Daisy was really there for the music. When, working on this character of Daisy, how did you want to show us her love for music rather than tell us her love for music? I think it's a, a really amazing time uh, where she's discovering music. It becomes a little bit of a, of a respite from some of the stuff that's going on in her life. Um, I really relate related to that um, as somebody who just found music as a kid, uh, wasn't great at sports, uh, just kind of loved to, um, you know, sit in the room with my headphones on and I, and I still do. Uh, and just sort of seeing that the Daisy um, starts as a fan uh, and as somebody who wants to contribute but doesn't really have the confidence to think that she could do that. Um, and then kind of having her um, her experience change over time so that she does gain the confidence and, and does mm -hmm. take the risk. Um, and that was something that was really exciting. And then I think you watch over the course of the series uh, someone who was pretending to have confidence, someone who was pretending to have that kind of uh, I'm not the muse, I'm the somebody attitude, um, turning into someone who actually believes in it. Um, and then the music that comes out of that, uh, you know, it really just is the stuff you're going to hear on the radio and, and um, is, is the album that, that Blake wrote. Uh, I just think that's a really great story to tell. Lauren Riley Keough, who was so great in Zola, so good in Zola, and in The Girlfriend Experiment, is, for people who don't know, Elvis Presley's granddaughter. So I'm curious if that came up in the casting process or even after how to handle this this pretty big connection to a legend. 
Well, I would not want to speak for Riley, but I will say, I think she knew she had it in her. And we certainly knew she had it in her. And we had this incredibly awesome conversation with her after she read the book, she came in and really said she connected so deeply with this character and, and wanted so much to play her. Um, but she definitely said to us much like Daisy that, that she had done most of her singing in the shower mm-hmm. up until that point. And, you know, she did a, she did a beautiful audition for us and we could tell that she had an incredible singing voice and Blake and Tony worked with her and they came back to us and they said, she's really got it. And none of us were surprised, obviously given her incredible lineage, um, you know, it felt very natural, but also, you know, just seeing how hard she worked um, and actually the whole band, you know, Sam Claflin really transformed himself and became a true rock star. And each of the members of the band became musicians and they really over COVID um, learned how to play their instruments and became a real band. We sort of say Daisy Jones and the Six is a real band. They're not a fake band. They're a real band. And it's an exciting thing. It was our privilege to get to watch it all happen. Yeah, I'm curious, Scott, about about Billy Dunn, about um, the actor who's playing Billy Dunn, because most people know him from The Hunger Games, Sam Claflin, um, and he's terribly British, Royal Academy of Arts and Drama British. <laughs> so, so what drew you? What drew you to casting him as a Pittsburgh kid with rock and roll dreams? Well, we've we've seen Sam do so many things um, in his career, and he's a bit of a chameleon. He always mm-hmm. kind of disappears into the role. Um, he's such a gifted actor, and I don't know if it's the British training thing or or what it is, but there's just something about um, his ability to kind of um, do anything uh, and uh, and do do it with like you know so much um, talent and and just charm and um this is an interesting character he's not the easiest to love he makes a lot of mistakes but the whole time you kind of have to feel the humanity there Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that sam can't help but do uh in everything um and you know i feel like even though he wasn't a trained singer one of the fascinating things is that when he started to sing he was really imitating blake's voice uh, oh, to the point where you would listen to it and you would say, oh, it's Blake's voice. It's the, But no, it's the British training actor thing that Sam has that enabled him to kind of do it, do it exactly um, and to make you believe it. Uh, it's It was fascinating. Lauren, did you want to add anything? I saw you nodding. I just, you know, when he came in, he had a hilarious audition. He sang Elton John. Tony Berg asked him to sing something different. We should let Tony tell you that story because it's a pretty great one uh, when he comes on. But, you know, we all, we all again, knew that he had it in him, but he really dug in and he worked so hard. And as Scott says, I'm sure that a lot of it can be attributed to his incredible training and discipline, but he transformed his voice. He transformed his body. Um, he was definitely in sort of, he had a different physique when he came in and auditioned than he did when we actually shot. He really became a 70s rock star. Um, and he learned how to play guitar and he really immersed himself in the character. Um, and it was incredible to watch. So by episode three, I'm not giving anything away. Daisy comes to work with the band. The first two episodes were sort of selling each of their origin stories. Um, And by episode three, Daisy comes to work with the band after being sort of tasked with upgrading the lyrics and helping a song be the best it could be, the song we just heard. And it's the first signs of artistic discord, but maybe sexual tension with Billy. Let's listen to a clip from episode three. This is Daisy taking an editor's pen to some of Billy's lyrics from Daisy Jones and the her version is like a completely different song, Teddy. Can I ask you a question? What do you think the song's about? 
what do I think the song is about? What the song yeah, what that is I wrote? The song what do I think the song that I wrote is about? It's about starting a new life, okay. Daisy. It's about redemption. Redemption from, from what? From letting people down. So guilt. It's about guilt. No, it's not about guilt. I'm it's sorry. I'm not trying to pry or anything. I'm just trying to, you know, get us on the same page and understand the story better so that I can help, which is, I think that's why I'm here. I'm assuming it's about you. Okay, so you let somebody down, right? And now you're you're saying, you know, everything's fine. Look at us now. Everything's in the past. Nothing. Yeah, what's wrong with that? I don't believe it. And it doesn't sound honest and it sounds simple. And I don't know you very well. You don't seem simple to me. Oh, thank you. Also, why did you call it Honeycomb? You know that, that that's a Ricky Nelson song, right? <laughs> that is from Daisy Jones and the Six. Scott, in writing, what is the secret, if you will share it, of that fine line between, we see it in, the, in so many of the old great romantic comedies, that love-hate line. Like, wh what is the secret of the love-hate moment between two characters? Well, I think trying to trying to make it um, as as believable as it as you can is important. Um, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that we definitely recognize in our own lives. Sometimes you meet somebody and you butt heads, but there's they're, they challenge you, uh, and that might make you uncomfortable. But it also kind of is interesting, um, and uh, you want to lean into that. And I, I just sort of love relationships where like the people themselves are the obstacle to their own happiness, um, and this was one of those. And um, just uh you know it was it was lovely on the page in the novel um and our jobs uh was just to kind of translate it so that um when you watch it you got the same experience as um as you would when you when you read the book lauren what's something you know about the 70s music scene that you didn't know before entering this project i mean i'll be very honest and say scott is the the total music lover and encyclopedia in our family so very simply, I would say almost everything. <laughs> I mean, I knew I knew so many of the stereotypes and stories on a broad canvas, but this gave us the opportunity to really immerse ourselves in the world, whether it was, you know, kind of going on music tours and learning things about Hollywood that we didn't know before to actually physically for production, taking the Sunset Strip and bringing it back to the 1970s. We shut down the Sunset Strip and we, our production design team did the most amazing job of actually restoring the Viper Room and making it filthy McNasty's, bringing us back to the whiskey. We went to the Troubadour, you know, just incredible things. And it was, it, there was a huge amount of research done by the writers and the production team um, you know, when I had the privilege of being on the sidelines of all of it, it was really cool. Lauren, before we say goodbye, uh, can you talk a little bit about the episode release schedule? So one and three came out on March 3rd in a block, and then four through six are dropping on Thursday, and then there'll be two episodes after that. In your mind, why does that work for this show to drop them in these blocks? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense. This is a music show, and this is it's sort of a symphony, right? This is movements. Um, so the first three episodes, we're really bringing Daisy and Billy together. And then the next three episodes, I don't want to do too many spoilers for you, mm -hmm. but we're going to see this band take flight, but we're also going to get a sense of how very complicated it can be. And then in the third batch of episodes, we're going to see uh, some twists and turns. And then in the final batch, which is nine and 10, we're going to, build towards Soldier Field, which is the thing that we're anticipating from the pilot. And hopefully all of the things that we were setting up 
in episodes one and two and three are going to pay off beautifully. And uh, we hope there will not be a dry eye in the house, as it were. So, Scott, we're going to ask you to stick around as we bring in your music team to talk a little bit more about Daisy Jones and the Six. Lauren, thank you for being with us. Thank you. So the music show's musical consultant, Tony Berg, and music supervisor, Frankie Pine, worked together to weave the real-life hits of the 70s with an original album created for this series. We'll talk with them after a quick break. More about Daisy Jones and the Six. Stay with us. You're listening to all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart, and we'll continue our conversation about the new streaming series, Daisy Jones and the Six, a rocky drama that follows a 70s band, Fleetwood Mackish, from obscurity to stardom. You heard before the break about the making of the show the cell itself. So now we're going to take a closer look, or rather a closer listen, to the music in this series. You can imagine, of course, what a dramatized Laurel Canyon of the 70s might sound like, a little CSN, Joni, some mamas, some papas. But rather than mimic the laid-back breeze rock sound, the show's music team brought in some well-known musicians like Blake Mills, who wrote and produced the album. And there are contributions from Mark Mumford and Matt Sweeney, among others. The result is an entire album of original music under the band's name, Daisy Jones and the Six. The real album from the not-so-real band is called Aurora, and over the past few days, it became the first album by a quote-unquote fictional band to hit number one on iTunes. Let's hear a little bit from the first track on the album the title track. This is Aurora. Talk about how they thought about bringing this to Amazon Prime's Rocky drama, Daisy Jones and the Six. Please welcome music consultant Tony Berg. Hi, Tony. Hello. How are you, Allison? I'm terrific. And music supervisor Frankie Pine. Hi, Frankie. Hi, Allison. And we made Scott Newstetter stick around for a little bit. Scott, thanks for sticking Surprise. around. <laughs> Hi, guys. We got to have Scott. <laughs> got to have Scott. So, Scott, uh, you know, in your job as showrunner adapting this for novel for screen, um, we know that the novel had lyrics. So what were your guardrails or your guidance that you gave to the music team about how to use the source material? Well, definitely the um, the narrative functions of the songs in the book had to be the same as uh, in the show, which means that, you know, um, this is basically a, a diegetic musical in a way. So we have a lot of the songs are telling the stories um, of the show. Uh, Taylor wrote lyrics, but when we were trying to find people who we could work with to make this album as amazing as it keeps being described of uh, as in the novel, um, which is, you know, they're using words like classic and unforgettable and all of these very intimidating words, uh, we found Blake and, and Tony. And we didn't want to sort of 
handcuff them any more than we already were by saying it has to be a song written from this perspective. It had to be a song made with 70s instruments. It had to sound like a lost 70s classic. Um, we weren't going to say, oh, and you also have to use all these words. Um, so uh, when you deal with people of this caliber, we kind of wanted them to to surprise us with the with their their gifts. Um, and that's what we got. So, Tony, when you got all this information from Scott and his team, what was the first thing you did? The first thing I did was read the book, which I thought uh, did a valiant job of trying to capture an ethos, a uh, time gone by, while at the same time depicting a, a relationship between two principles that was fraught with drama uh, and love and uh, prepared myself as Blake did to uh, kind of engage on the long term. So Frankie, and you're, well, you're thinking about curating music and sounds from the real life 70s. How did you think about how do we do this so it feels organic? Not so suddenly people think like, oh, I just heard Aerosmith. Well, I think overall we wanted the, all of the music to have an authenticity. And I think that's one of the things that Blake and Tony kind of brought to the table was this authentic sound from that time period, but also kind of gave it a, a fresh and new perspective. And so all of the source music was then just kind of pulled to make us reminisce about that time period and kind of bring us back into that world. Yeah, Tony, when you're thinking about creating a sound of a time period, how does one, I guess it's the uh, appreciate versus appropriate question, how do you mm -hmm. not fall into mimicking? Well, when Frankie uses the word authentic, uh, it's her code for very old when describing me. <laughs> so uh, I was, in fact, making records at Sound City in the 70s. So there was nothing about this that was unfamiliar to me. And as Blake and I have worked together for 20 years, we have a very good uh, kind of uh, shorthand and we're able to communicate very easily and to his great credit he was able to write and produce tracks that evoked an era without as you suggest mimicking it and i think it gives that music a contemporary life at the same time and frankly you've been in this space before working on the show nashville which is very much about a sound of a place right the sound and the place or in concert oh bad 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 pun um work together um when you were thinking about this show, you know, Tony said he read the book. I'm sure you read the book. What else did you listen to just to kind of get yourself ready to do this work? Well, I mean, I was a child of the 70s, so I was very well aware of all of the music from that time period. And my dad was a DJ. So, um, you know, there were just boatloads of records that I grew up with that, you know, most people probably don't know of. And so really kind of digging and trying to find those 70s gems that really evoke that place and that and that time, I think was really important uh, on this project. What's a gem? What, what should we go looking for? <laughs> I don't, Scott, do you want to comment on what your gems are? Uh, I mean, of that era, I mean, I love Big Star. That's one of my, my gems for sure that, that people should listen to more. Um, but, you know, the, the, Frankie, we have so many great needle drops in our mm -hmm. in our show, independent of the original music that, that Blake and Tony gave us. Um, I think it's going to be really fun for people to discover 
all these things. Some of them are very well known um, to, to evoke the time, and then other ones are less well known that I think people will want to seek out. Scott, was there any track that you knew you wanted to have in this series? Uh, the first episode is definitely built around uh, some Carol King stuff, um, which I thought was was important um, for Daisy and also for Billy because you know um, the birds were a, a big influence on the Dunn brothers, and Carol King is a big influence on Daisy, and um, we're we're watching them kind of uh, on the road to coming together. Um, but there's a lot more coming that um, I don't want to spoil because the '70s is such a fertile decade of music. Um, and you start with the birds and Carol Kane and you end with, you know, television and mm-hmm. uh, punk rock and disco and, and just um, all of the things that kind of come at the end of the decade. Just to, to know that that's a 10 year period is so exciting and cool. Yeah. I mean, when I heard this track Aurora for the first time, I heard Elvis Costello's pump it up in there a little bit, even though I know mm-hmm. it's very Fleetwood Mac. It's, I heard Elvis um, just my two cents. My guests are Tony Berg and Frankie Pine, as well as Scott Newstetter. We're talking about Daisy Jones and the Six. Tony, I don't know if you heard earlier, but Scott and Lauren were talking about the work that you did with these actors, specifically Riley mm-hmm. and Sam. Um, what Could you describe a little bit some of the process of turning these two very good actors into believable rock singers? Uh, I can. I should preface it by telling you that when I was dropped into this Zoom call, I heard a very animated and heated argument going on. And I thought, what the hell kind of interview is this? But you were playing something from the soundtrack, a scene with Daisy. (laughs) I thought it was you yelling at Scott. And I thought, I don't know if I want to be part of this. Well, that shows you how believable this is, what you created, Scott. Exactly. But getting back to your question, uh, you know, I'll be candid. When, When we began work on this, Lake and I were were quite adamant that it would have to be a, a seasoned singer uh, filling these roles uh, as Daisy and uh, and Billy. But we met Riley and Sam, and the two of them are such good actors, and were so clearly dedicated to the idea that they could do this that we got on board. And to their great credit, they did the work. A little help from COVID, which extended our schedule significantly. We had guitar, keyboard, vocal, drum lessons going on eight hours a day in our complex. And uh, we would do a lot of recording on microphones for our our singers to acclimate Hmm. so that they were familiar with that process, because that then informs how you stand in front of a mic on stage. So it was an intensive uh, kind of immersion, much as if you were learning a new language. You know, obviously, Taylor Jenkins reads and says this is Fleetwood Mac. There's some Fleetwood Mac DNA in her story. Um, and you can hear it in, in the album a little bit. I want to play a first few seconds of Rhiannon. Let's listen to a riff from Daisy Jones and the Six, Let Me Down Easy. So you can hear it. You can hear it a little bit, Tony. Tell me a little bit about the instrumentation. Did you... I actually actually don't know what you're talking about. That first song, (laughs) I've never heard before, but that second one sounds great. Uh, What I would say is, you're funny. That, ironically, 
these 50 years later, instruments, mm -hmm. microphones, recording equipment from that era and before are still what you find in studios today. Mm -hmm. Because it was a kind of a golden age of, of instrument manufacture and equipment manufacture. So we were doing what we always do. It just happens that uh, the musicians involved, the, the writers and players were, uh, and producers rather, were attuned to what we were trying to get. And I should add that that particular song, um, my daughter walked in with that song. So uh, that was a source of great pride for me. And, uh, and I think what Blake did with it was terrific. But we were mindful of the era without being uh, burdened by it. That's Zberg, by the way, if people want to check her out. Um, Frankie, you were a musician and artist uh, yourself. How does that help you do your job? Well, I don't know if I was a musician and an artist. <laughs> I'm going to say you were. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I just kind of know what I want to visually see and what I want to feel. And I, I think that's kind of like the, the crux of being a really good music supervisor in the sense that... It, being in that position of being an artist and being, you know, on a stage, I know what that feels like. And I want to be able to make sure that what we visually see on camera is how it feels. Scott, when you think about a piece of music in Daisy Jones and the Six, which is not just great music, but really advances the narrative and is really necessary for the storytelling, what's a piece of music that you can think of? Well, I think that um, the piece you just played, um, Z's song um, that she wrote with Blake, uh, Let Me Down Easy, is um, there's an entire episode basically centered around the writing of that. Um, and you don't see that kind of process very much in television because, you know, it's hard to make it interesting. But that's what this whole show is about. Uh, and I remember we brought Riley and Sam in to watch uh, Blake and Z work on it. And we just sort of sat in the corner and, and watched the process. And uh, and I got my notebook out and started jotting down some some stuff and, um, you know, trying to kind of replicate that experience um, for viewers and to make it fascinating was a real challenge. But by the end of the episode, when the song comes together, um, I feel like the, um, the emotions really come through uh, and... I'm excited for uh, for the audiences to check it out. Tony, you know, I'm sort of the vintage. I, I remember the Partridge family and the monkeys <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, and, you know, I was kind of going through, I was researching, I'm like, okay, music series that, you know, and there haven't been one that hasn't been one that's really sort of survived in a long time. I mean, Fly the Concords, mm -hmm. but that was also comedy and those guys are so funny. Yes. Um, what makes you believe that this, it's already, the reviews are really good, I should say. What makes you believe that this is going to work? Well, let's just from a musical standpoint, I would say this. Uh, Scott and his partner, Will Graham, the co-showrunner, and Lauren could easily have gone to publishers and said, uh, give me what you think are hit songs that sound like the 70s. But instead, they went to Blake, whose history isn't as a, a hit songwriter. It's a history as a great songwriter. And that was the prevailing uh, kind of expectation that these songs would be excellent. And without advancing the story like a musical, would at least reinforce or complement the story. And I think these songs stand up very well. And it's 
No coincidence, because you've got co-writers like Jackson Brown and Marcus Mumford and Phoebe Bridgers and Z Berg. And that's a good list. Daisy Jones and the Sixth is dropping on Amazon Prime. The first three have already dropped. The next Three come on Thursday. My guests have been Tony Berg, Frankie Pine, and Scott Neustetter. Thank you so much for spending time with us. It's a lot of fun. Thank Thank you. you. Let's go out on Regret Me from Daisy Jones and the Six. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.